Welcome to Running On Purpose, a weekly podcast dedicated to training the body, the mind, and the soul for what the race requires. My name is Steve Sisson, and I will be your host. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Running On Purpose podcast. Why'd you say it like that? Like another, ugh. Well, this week I'm so excited because I've got my (laughs) co-host back with me. Who was missing last week? Well, actually, to be fair, because we had a couple of people bring that up, I was there, but you were on a roll, and we stopped recording a couple of times so I could tell you to just be on your roll. Yeah, that was two episodes ago. No. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. We've been missing you, KLT. We've been missing you. Well, you know. We heard about it, so... Kristen is back, and she will be in full effect today. I guarantee you, you will get a few, uh, you will get some... F-bombs. Well, you're certainly going to get a rise out of her. Because C-word. The, the topic is, the topics are, well, they're, they're incendiary. Well, that may be a little strong for, for what Okay, let's just, the title is Game Changers, so don't get ahead of yourself with making it bigger than it is. It's just Game Changers. <laughs> okay. It is just game changers. Thanks for taking the piss out of me, Kristen. Anyway, so what we're going to talk about in terms of game changers, we're this is going to be the first maybe of a series of episodes. We'll see. We don't want to fence ourselves in too much, but we do have many more of these game changers that we feel like would be beneficial to riff on. And we chose to put four of these together because, number one, we didn't want to go too deep and too far down the rabbit hole of each one of these that would require us to give all the data and all the info, but more along the lines of saying, hey, if you're not looking at these game changers as things that you can do to optimize your training, to optimize your mindset, to optimize your soul and where you are at from a from a whole person perspective, then look at these, at least these four, and then any subsequent ones we do. So this time we're going to talk about sleep. Nutrition, letting go, and trail running. Those are our four topics to riff off of. So we're going to start with sleep. And, uh, you know, Kristen and I, I don't really think, well, we believe all four of these are game changers. We both agree that they are. But you have a particular interest in a few more of these than, I love them all too. They're all important no matter what, but. Sleep, man. Sleep's, I feel like, the most important thing. You think it's the, it's more important than getting out the door and running? I think sleep is infinitely more important than miles. What? I should throw this mic down right now and walk out of the room. This is coming from a woman who ran 82 miles last week. For the first time in over a year. However, but I also sleep really well. So, a little bit of a backstory. I was on Ambien for like two years Anyway, had some postpartum insomnia issues I was dealing with and um, took Ambien for a really long time. So I was sleeping, but it wasn't real sleep and it was not a good space to be in. But anyway, since we've optimized my sleep, I feel like I can train harder and actually sleep less for, for, I don't know, sleep fewer hours, but they're much higher quality. Not that that's recommended for everybody, you know, um, that eight hours of sleep thing is 
a good rule to go by. And in general, I do really believe most people need between seven and eight hours of sleep. But, um, Steve, one of your old, one of your former athletes can sleep five hours a night and she's great. She's good to go. Um, and she does that all the time. Um, so I think everybody's different. So know, know what your set point is for sleep for sure. But we'll try um, to determine it. Yeah, figure out what that is. But I definitely am a big advocate of 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 setting aside a workout or running fewer miles to get more sleep if it's a particularly stressful week or if um, you've done a lot of traveling or obviously if you're sick and you need more rest. Um, taper weeks, drop weeks. So what are some things people can do to better optimize their sleep what do you think about like the apps that are out there that people can use to track it man that's here we're already ditch it you like stay away from blue light (laughs) don't like put your phone away a few hours before you go to bed every night I know that's really hard to do but like honestly what are you going to get off of your phone that you need right before bed um I mean, by even buying like a an old school alarm clock so you don't have to get on your phone and up pops a text message or a group me or whatever that distracts you from setting your alarm and now you're looking at your phone more. Do you know what I mean? Like putting your putting your phone in another room three hours before you go to bed, I think is like the number one way. Yeah, I don't that do you that, can... but I do put my phone on do not disturb. Um, and when I first did that, it really, it kind of weirded me out because... I was like, I'll miss things, right? But I did set it so that I have four people that call me, and if they call me, then I know it's an emergency and I can wake up. But otherwise, um, you know, there are ways that you can use technology to to optimize your sleeping. And you know, you're wearing a watch. Some of those watches will tell you how your heart rate worked and how those things. Yeah, almost work. all of those, all of your your heart rate based like Garmin, Apple Watch, all that'll tell you, give you a general idea of what your heart rate's doing while you're sleeping, how much deep sleep you get, how much you move during the night. Also, don't let, if you do track, don't let movement be a big issue. You should be moving throughout the night. You shouldn't be, what is it? What's the saying? Dead as a door log? No. Dead as a doornail. (laughs) Dead as a doornail. I screwed that up. (laughs) Anyway. Sleep like a log. Dead as a doornail. You you just combined the two and just yeah. sleep like a doornail. Anyway, <laughs> shut up, Steve. Moving on. Um, um, yeah, so so if you do use those, that's fine. But just remember that all that is is information. Um, if you're really looking to optimize your sleep, to optimize your recovery and your performance, um, you really want to, like I said, with the blue light, I mean, that's just, that's just, high noon sun that's that's jacking with your circadian rhythm that is um it's doing a lot to the cycles that you would naturally fall into in in well in a deep in deep sleep and it it sort of prohibits you from getting there as quickly as you would without the blue light um one another thing i think and we'll maybe talk about later with nutrition is um, closing your feeding window. I mean, if you could get away with it six hours before bed, but that's not realistic for <laughs> everybody who not likes to people. eat at a normal or people who have family dinners and want right. to eat with their family. But I mean, 
in general, trying to stop eating before or as the sun sets is a really good sort of soft rule. Um, For those of us who wake up at four, that might mean you stop eating like two hours before the, you know, before you go to bed. But, you know, do your best with that and realize too that, um, that you, you shouldn't let these things get in the way of life. So if there's some big function or whatever, and you're celebrating, like that's a little bit different, but in terms of training for anything, try and follow these rules. Another one I think is really important is beginning to set up some kind of rhythm with when you go to bed. That has been a big game changer for me is sleeping, trying to go to bed at about the same time since most of the time I'm waking up at around the same time can help your body know when it's going to go into a sleep space and it'll optimize your sleep when you're in there because it'll know this is the same time I normally go to bed yeah. and this is the same time I normally wake up. And I think most people recognize the value of waking up at the same time, but they may not recognize the value of sleeping at the same time. Of course, there are those times where we have to work later or we're, our, our lives are more busy and so we have to go to sleep later. That's okay, but still trying to work on as consistent a rhythm as possible is, is helpful. Yeah, and I also want to go back to um, even just the beginning of this topic, why I feel like it's important to optimize sleep and how how critical it is in the cycle of training. Um, you know, people always say that recovery is just as important as hard workouts, and I think the biggest component of recovery is sleep because when you sleep is when your body – um, releases HGH and that's when human growth hormone, right? That's when you repair all of the damage you did the day before. Um, so it's even, it's even more important to get maybe even a couple of extra hours after big workouts. But, um, you know, if you think about that, the person who works a full-time job, has kids, wakes up early, trains, goes to bed late, you're, Missing a few hours here and there is one thing, but you consistently not getting enough sleep just digs a deeper and deeper hole for your body to get out of. And it will affect who you are as a runner for years to come, right? It'll, um, and it'll really inhibit your ability to perform. The stress compounds. It does. And yeah. you can't make up for sleep lost. That doesn't mean you need to stress doubly because you lost the sleep, but it is something to consider those times when you have to stay up later that you are not going to be able to make it up later. It's just, it's just a missed window. Um, and the napping that you do can be beneficial and helpful, but it can't be looked at as a, um, replacement for the long-term extended, you know, sleep ranges of six hours or seven hours or eight hours. Um, you know, you can't just consistently say I'll sleep four hours and then get an hour nap somewhere along the line. Um, it's not as beneficial to you as it would be if you would get all the sleep done all at one time. Of course, if you can only get four and that's that, and you can get an hour nap, take the hour nap. But I think you get what we're saying is that trying to stack it and put it all together, um, will create the much better sleep responses that you're looking for to recover and recuperate and be ready to perform. Yeah. And all that to say, um, I, 
you know, I used to draw this, I had this really hard edge about miles and getting the training in no matter what, um, as you know. <laughs> and I've softened on that quite a bit because, you know, I talk a lot about giving yourself grace. And I think that when you're that tired, if you are that sleep deprived, skip the run, skip the workout, like skip the workout, do the run. If you're too tired for that, skip the run, take a day off or run later in the evening or do a lunch run. Um, but I definitely don't think, I think we should let go of the attitude that, that we grind, 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 no matter what, um, realizing that without a well-rested and well-recovered body, you're not going to hit whatever time goal it is that you want to achieve for the future. And that says nothing about being able to run when you're 60, 70, 80 years old. Do you know what I mean? So thinking about what, what will pave the road for you as a runner for many years to come. Yeah. The, uh, sports physiologist, John Cayley talks a lot about this when he talks about the attitude of the mindset that you have when you go into a workout and how that can deeply and surprisingly negatively impact your result. He uses the example of somebody might have gotten in a car accident or he also uses an example of someone who didn't get any get enough sleep that they're going to not get a full pull, a full benefit from the training mode training effect they're trying to get from their workout because they're coming in with greater levels of stress it is absolutely known that that negative experience going into it does not allow you to get the full adaptation from the session you're trying to get so you are better off rolling over going to sleep getting an extra couple of hours maybe getting up a little bit later getting an easy run in then you are and then being having the right mindset for the next time you come in, because if you're only going to get 50% of the value of that quality workout, would you roll over and get out of bed? But that's, you're at best getting, he, he uses the example from what I heard on a, one of his podcasts that you only get like 5% to 10% of the benefit of the work. So let's say you're going to do six times a mile at your 10 K pace. You're going to get the benefit of one of those miles, not all six of them. So they're wasted. It's a wasted effect. Um, yeah, so that's something to think about when you consider how you're going to approach um, the choice of whether to get extra sleep or to not. Now, that flies at the f in the face of what a lot of conventional wisdom is, but that's the reason why we pay attention to scientific studies, and that's, that's where those things can benefit us, is to listen and figure out how we can best put ourselves in a position to be successful. I'd like to point out that Mr. Anti-Science is over here saying to pay attention to science. It's not a real thing that I hate science. I'm like tipping my hat at Vincat right now. Yeah, right I'm, not, right I'm now. not a science hater. I'm, a, I'm someone who is frustrated when people use only science That's and cherry-pick science to fill in the story that they want to tell about what's happening in training. Mm, that's where I stand. All right, that's fair. Fair <laughs> enough. Move, moving on. What's our next? Uh, what's our next game changer? Our next game changer is directly related to the same one, and it is nutrition, because as you said, it's one of the ones that these two kind of play can play into each other. But um, the first thing and most important thing we want to talk about with nutrition is 
everyone hears calories in, calories out, the famous um, not running novel, um, Once a Runner, talks about if the furnace is hot enough, anything will burn. And it is true that calories in and calories out play a part of what you do from a nutritional standpoint, but it is absolutely not the only story. And anyone who's telling that story that it's just calories in, calories out is going to be missing a huge, a bunch of really, really important things. So one of the, what are some of the things that people will miss when they think just purely calories in, calories out? I mean, you can eat a calorie of, you can eat 100 calories of white flour or you can eat 100 calories of kale and you cannot tell me that those two are the same. They do different things for your mitochondria, for your gut health. Um, different They'll sit in your stomach differently. Different nutrient densities. Yep. Um, so I think, and again, to to go, to reiterate your point of, I do, I am in the camp of calories absolutely do matter. Um with regard to weight loss and weight gain. Um, but I don't think that it is the only factor. I think there are lots of different things to consider, but the, but the most important thing to consider with regard to, to marathon running or running in general is nutrient, the nutrient density of your food. Um, I, I definitely think anytime I give any recommendations to people about food, I actually stole this from you, right? Yes, did you I? Did. Yep. Um, but it's always hunt, pick, fish. If you can't hunt it, pick it, or fish it, don't eat it. Mm -hmm. um, That's a gross simplification of what most of us can do because most of us aren't hunting. Right. Most of us aren't picking our berries and most of us aren't fishing. But, but that is. If it's not a whole, like, okay, if it's not a whole food, don't eat it or eat it in. With extreme care and extreme moderation. Um, yeah, when I was coaching at the University of Texas, we had a nutritionist who came in and said that, and my jaw dropped. It was like, the point of being hunt fish pick is that it's that fucking simple. It is that simple. Choose a food that could be hunted or picked or fished. If you're going to choose something that's not that way, then basically make sure you know what's provenance and know where it's coming from. If you're going to eat a cow... Make sure that that cow has had a good life because if you eat a cow that has not had a good life, what's going to happen? Well, pause. Now you're going a little bit deep, like you're going a little bit further down the rabbit hole and I don't know if that's what we signed oh, up for today. Gosh, that's like our own, uh, our own spirituality with, with regard to food. But I do think that there are some really simple rules to follow and that's if you basically, you know, they say shop on the perimeter of the grocery store. If it's in the middle aisles, if it's shelf stable, don't eat it. Um, you know, a few exceptions like olive oil, spices, things like that. Tortilla chips. Oh boy. Okay. I mean, we're not we're not telling people to live a like you eat tortilla chips, I eat tortilla chips. This is life. Like you you will you're going to go to your holiday party. You, no matter what happens, people are eating some form of food that is processed and or um has gone through multiple well, channels we're, to get we're not saying the they're gonna they're gonna like kick the bucket and shit their pants and erase if they eat those things just mm -hmm. as some some general guidelines this is what we should all try to do which is eat whole foods 
Um, yes. I and think that and is... happy cows, I guess? Question yeah. mark? I don't know. I mean, I think it, there's this topic is so big, it is really hard to um, get a handle on. In terms of, it, it's not that hard to get a handle on, but there's so many differing points of view. Kristen and I have talked about having an exclusive topic on the f- conf- on the conversation of nutrition, and we both step away from it because we just know that you can find an argument for everything. You can have the argument for people who should eat only animals. You have people who don't eat any animals. You have people, who, and the only thing, and you, you have the, all these different extremes, but it seems to be that every person that we talk to and everything that we've heard and read about nutrition is if it's whole food, if it's a natural food, if it's growing on a tree, if it's running through fields, and if it's in the wa- in a water form that's safe, you're you're better off eating there first and making those decisions first and having them be the lion's share of what's on your plate so that you're optimizing your running. And the reason you're optimizing your running is because this is what your body's running on. This is how you recover. This is how you perform. And when you're choosing crap calories, you're going to get crap response out of it. Um, Well, when you're choosing crap calories, it's not, it's not just about it is not just about the way that they're processed it's what they don't have right so you're if you're eating i don't know what shit people like to eat dots steven dots if you're feeding your body things that aren't nutrient dense regularly instead of nutrient dense food so if you're the type of person who likes to eat an all white plate which is like white flour, white like white bread, all of these white things with no color, no diversity. You're not only are you not giving yourself the nutrients that you need that are that are crucial for recovery, but you're also not feeding your gut biome. And when you're not feeding your gut biome, it's not diverse. And when it's not diverse, you are more likely to get sick. You are more likely to get injured. Um, even things like your proprioception will be off. Um, you are less likely to have energy throughout the day. I mean, there are so many things that when you aren't eating a diverse and nutrient-dense diet and not feeding and taking care of your gut health, your entire body is out of balance and out of whack. And Well, give people a little bit of an idea about what you mean by gut health, because this was something that completely shocked me. And when you gave me a few podcasts to listen to by the inestimable Zach, Dr. Zach Bush, um, I, I listened to those and I was completely floored, not only about what was going on in my body and my body's ability to recover and refuel and perform, but also of how it impacted our world and how it's impacting global warming, how it's impacting so many of the other issues that we're challenged with in our current world. So give people just a little bit of an idea. Scratch just the surface of that. And we'll make sure that we give people one or two podcasts that they can go to if they're interested in this topic to listen to by Dr. Zach Bush. Um, Because I think this is an important thing to at least use as a game changer, right? Because it was a game changer in the way I chose to eat because I understood my gut health mattered. I couldn't understand why I couldn't, shouldn't eat macaroni and cheese from a performance standpoint, because I was performing just fine off of it, or I thought I was. 
And then when I made changes based on what my gut health was going on with my gut health, because I understood these, you know, just a few basic things about it. I didn't want that crap food anymore. I limited it to just the minimum amount, a minimum amount to try to optimize what was going on with my gut. So give people just a little bit of idea why you mean what you mean by gli- what you mean by gut health. Okay, so oh, this is big. Okay, so your your microbiome is. Um, all of these microbes that live inside of the human body, there's like a hundred trillion of them. Um, and they outnumber human cells 10 to one. Like it's when people say we're not even human or we're not even mostly human, that's what they mean is that um, these microbes have different genetic material um, than, than, than human DNA, right? Um, so it's like, bacteria and fungi and all these things. Okay. So a majority of that microbiome lives in our gut. There's in our nose and our brain, um, breasts, like all throughout our body, but in our gut. Um, and the microbiome essentially helps us digest our food. It helps to regulate our immune system. Um, and it, protects us against other bacteria that cause disease, helps with um, vitamin and mineral absorption. Without it, we don't, we don't live, essentially. I guess that's yeah. like the short of it. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, it's the largest organ in our body. We've, I always thought it was our skin. People, we did think it was our skin, but now we're finding out it's in our, it's our, in our gut, and it's, it is taking in most of the information we need to stay alive. 100%. And that's a shocker to a lot of people. You'd think that that would be your fingers or your eyes. But no, what's going on in your gut is so crucial and so essential to human functioning to say nothing about what it means to be an athlete. And then when you're talking about optimizing and having performance, these things become more and more important. So, yeah, it, it, do your research. Do a little bit of research on Dr. Zach Bush. Who's, he's, in, he's down this road with um, – the gut, the, the gut health, and that's, some, that's a place he started with, but he's into a number of other things as well. And I think if you want to get deeper into why nutrition really matters, listen to him because you cannot, you cannot not listen to that and not be affected as a human being and not to look at your children differently. I mean, you, your children, what they are eating is going to kill all of us. It's going to kill them, and it, it, it is going to be what kills them, not necessarily – other issues, right? Well, I mean, I think, so Dr. Bush talks a lot about um, topsoil and the depletion, like ascent, the how it's, we have depleted our topsoil and, or it will be done for in, what does he say, like 60 years, mm-hmm. I think. Um, regardless, at the very least, I do encourage you to do some research on gut health and what that means for you as an athlete, you as a human, you as a parent. Um, epigenetically, a lot of um, quote unquote inherited diseases have more have a. It seems like has a lot to do with gut health passed down from mother to child. Um, inflammation, autoimmunity, things like that. So I don't know. I just encourage you to at least listen to um, the rich roll, the rich roll 
And I'll put a link to that in okay. our... Okay. Do both of them. Yeah, I will. But anyway, it's... it's it's And it's highly entertaining. This is not somebody who you're going to be like, oh my gosh, this is a scientist, a doctor telling me boring stuff. He's... He is so... Oh man, he's... He's the bomb. He's... And he's just a beautiful human being. So anyway, listen to it. Decide what you want to do. Yeah, don't take it from us. Take it from the doctor, the triple board certified doctor, right? Yeah. As he hates it to be called. Triple but, board certified. Um, so let's talk also about another little hot topic that people are talking about these days when it comes to nutrition and something that you and I have played with on and off. Uh, well, actually, we both do it now pretty religiously and consistently, and that's intermittent fasting. Talk just a little bit about what intermittent fasting is and why someone might want to play with that and consider using it if they're talking about getting ready for, and, and they're talking about training and performance. Yeah. Um, this one's kind of a little little sticky to get into, but I don't know. I'm going to say it because whatever. I don't give a shit. But if I think intermittent, intermittent fasting is a really good way to look at eating from the standpoint of your circadian rhythm and how your body and when your body um, best digests food and processes its fuel. Um, but I also think it's a good way to look at nutrition when you are trying to cut calories, uh, for the sake of hitting race weight or, um, or just trying to manage your weight in general. If your feeding window, most people have a feeding window of at a minimum of 12 hours. That is excessive, I think. Um, and if you're trying to lose weight, if you shorten that feeding window to say eight hours and you ate from noon. What does that mean? Though? What's a, what's a feeding window? When you someone? start eating and when you stop eating. So most people wake up, eat breakfast. I mean, even some of your athletes, Steve will like wake up, eat breakfast before they run, run, eat breakfast again, go to work, have a snack, have lunch, have a snack have dinner and it's just this constant feeding. So your body is in a constant state of digestion and it's, it's, it's continuously working to break down and digest this food, which never gives it a real chance to run on its own fat fuels. Um, so if you are trying to lose weight, there's that to consider. Then there's also, you know, the, the insulin response that's triggered by eating. Um, but the short of it is if you have a shorter win eating window, you, you eat less unnecessary calories, right? Yep. And this also comes, the reason why so many people are, are, are intellectually or viscerally against the idea of intermittent fasting is because they're still believing this horse shit that they've been told um, by every standard nutrition food pyramid out there that you need to eat three meals a day and these three meals need to be eaten of these particular things. And anybody who still thinks that way is living um, in 1972 when that report came out and that report was not created by nutritionists. <laughs> it was created by uh, professional politicians to uh, try to optimize a scenario for um, big business basically. So, but that's another topic for another day, but just know that if you're like, what the hell is intermittent fasting and why would I want to do it? Just consider that the bill of goods you've been sold from a nutritional perspective of what 
we're eating in America and how we're eating and the timing of what we're eating has been based on something that's not grounded in in hard data and science. It's grounded in um, an arbitrary, pulled out of the air, baloney report that was created for the Congress in 1972. And that's pretty much all there is to say about that. Well, that's not all there is, but yeah, we'll leave it at that. It's so at some point we can talk about like nutrition and fuel for running and before and after and all those things. Oh, but give me my, I love to talk a little conspiracy theory. Come on. I can't even go conspiracy. No conspiracy theory in here, huh? No, go ahead. I mean, <laughs> no, we'll, I'm done. next up we'll get Alex Jones on the podcast. <laughs> Let's see how, how that goes over for our ratings. <laughs> oh boy. So is there anything else that you want to, any other acts you want to grind on this topic of, of, uh, of nutrition? No, other than, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not, well, let's say I'm not in the camp of you should be an intuitive eater or practice intuitive eating solely. But I do think that some form of intuitive eating is important. I'm working with a woman right now who, um, we, we have her on a schedule for intermittent fasting and we have her macros adjusted to a specific place. However, we do practice intuitive eating on days that she has a hard workout. So if she has a hard workout at six in the morning and her feeding window wouldn't normally open until noon, if she's not feeling depleted and hungry after the workout, by all means, carry on. You don't have to eat. However, if if after that workout she's feeling just ravenous and is craving sugar, go ahead and have go ahead and have the fructose. Go and by that I mean have a banana, have an apple, have some protein, have like have what it is that your body is asking for. Don't stick to this number because that's what we said we were going to do. Um, and so that's what I mean by practice some sort of intuitive eating. If, if your body is asking for something after a hard effort, give it that, but also question what it's asking for. So if your body is craving something sweet after a workout, don't, don't assume that means it's time for donuts. Um, but instead assume that means your body perhaps needs to restore, um, the glycogen stores that were depleted in the liver. So have some fruit, have some white rice, have some, I don't know, have some good food, have some whole foods. <laughs> there you go. It's not an endorsement for the company. Just it kind of comes back whole to food, that, right? Small, like small it's cap. like eat the most, the least processed, most whole foods you possibly can in whatever ethical and or financial space you possibly can, because there's those pieces in pl to play in that question as well. Yeah, so if Whole Foods wants to give us a sponsorship, <laughs> I mean, that would be okay. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, so the next one is one you're definitely super, this is one you brought to the table for sure. And one I totally believe in as well, letting go. So why did you want this? Why do you consider this a game changer, Kristen? What is it about this idea of letting go? Maybe what do you even mean by letting go? And then why is it a game changer? So letting go is near and dear to my heart because for a long time, I've written some about this, but I ran from a space of scarcity and a space of of like running to prove something, whatever that was. And because of that, I set these arbitrary goals for mileage, for pace, 
and I held on to them. I, I, I sunk my claws into them and I held on to them and never budged from them. So if I said, if I decided in my mind that 90 miles a week was the number that I needed to hit, I hit 90 miles a week. And I never deviated from that. Yeah, and as your coach, I can say you were absolutely arbitrary in your selection of that mileage and those paces. Oh, sure. It was, as you like to say, it was a dick measuring contest. Like if so-and-so is doing that, I can do that plus 10 more. Yeah. And I ended up getting injured and lots of bad things happened from it. And I was a total asshole during that entire time of like, this is the only thing that matters. And I think that if we can loosen the reins some and learn to flow more with running as opposed to blindly holding on to every run must be at this pace. I think it makes for number one and most importantly, more enjoyable running, but also healthier running, a healthier body, a healthier mindset. I mean, we can go out and we can hammer sub seven, sub six minute miles and that's great and that's beautiful and that is necessary on days when what is required is hard work but when it is when recovery is required which is every other day is at a minimum right with when recovery is required do that and don't that is when you let go that is when you you let your body fall into whatever whatever rhythm it needs to recover. So for me today, that was, what do we run? Like nine minute miles. And that's what my body asked for. I had a wonderful conversation with a friend. and It was beautiful. Yeah. It was a beautiful run. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can let go of, here's my biggest pet peeve, and I'm looking at our show notes right now, and it's all caps, bold, and underline. Letting go of what the fuck your shit looks like on fucking Strava. (laughs) And I'm on Strava, so I get it. However, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like. If it looks like a slow run or a fast run or a... Let it, like, let that out of your brain. And it's like at the end of the day, you have to decide what do you want. Do you want to be a healthy, strong, happy runner? Or do you want to look good on Strava? Do you want to hit your time goal in the grand scheme of your command performance? Or do you want to hit these arbitrary numbers that you set along the way? Not that those numbers aren't important. Primarily also set them up so that you could compare yourself to other people because you were in a comparison to other people. Right, right. So you were using a an external source of information that had no relevance to you except that you use it as a source to track your miles. But now it's turned into competition in and of itself um, and and in no way, shape, or form is it a way that you're going to get an award for. You're not going to get into Boston because your Strava looks sexy. Um, and you're probably not even going to get the kudos you think you're getting from the people around you about what your Strava looks like because mostly they're all, those, all those people that are in that dick measuring contest are constantly more worried about what the hell's going on with them themselves in their own situation yeah i mean we did i did a whole podcast episode the last episode about about the mileage aspect of this but i do think that letting go is really deep in other areas as well like looking at your 
habits? What habits do you have that you need to let go of? I mean, I was a I was a pretty significant and heavy drinker for a long, long time. It affected my sleep. It affected my nutrition. Letting go of that and and being willing to get into a new place with that aspect of my life has opened up so many other things. Um, letting go of the default conditioning aspects that I had about certain roles I have in my life, certain expectations I had. This is a this basic topic of letting go should allow you to should be a place where you're just examining and looking at the things that you hold on to that aren't serving you and to look at the things in your life that make your training and racing more effective or is that thing that you're holding on to that you need to let go of negatively impacting your race performance and your training performances because creating greater stress in your life is not worth it. Getting rid of stress in your life will pay dividends of a huge extent. Yeah. I, I think about this too, this way, which is we write the story before we've lived the story. Let go of the story. So if you say I'm a 90 mile per week runner and I I run this and I do this and I identify with these things and this is how I, these are the roles I attach to. You are writing your story before you've even had the, before you even had the chance to live it. So instead let go of that narrative and, and be a more flowy runner. What'd you used to call it? Waves and bars. Yeah, I did. I had waves and bars. That's more like what people are on a big, from a big perspective. It's more like rhythm and flow. Sure. But I mean, it's relevant with regard to what our natures are. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Some people are waves in the fact that they're more fluid and flow with things. And some people are bars in the sense that they're um, hard data. Everything has to be exactly the way it goes. And um, generally in my life, I've found that waves are significantly more fun to be around, but that's probably because I'm a quintessential wave. <laughs> you don't have an ounce of fucking bar in you. <laughs> tell you that much. <laughs> so, um, anything else we want to pontificate on about about this topic on terms of letting go other than we understand it's a little bit challenging. We're not giving you any real clear objectives other than what the fuck your shit looks like on fucking Strava is something you should let go of. But you and almost everybody that's listening to this already knows that. But yet, have you done it? Let us just be the reminder. Correct. And some of these things just by being open to the idea that there are things to let go of. You might find on one of your easy days that this is a, when you're running by yourself, that this is something you could ask yourself. Is there one thing that I'm holding on to in my running that's not serving me that I could get rid of? And pick something with pretty low-hanging fruit, right? Um, we're always talking about the things to pick up, to do, to add to your regimen to be effective as a runner. But what are things you can let go of? Because letting go of a few things, or one thing even, may start a cascade of, of unexpected benefit to you over the long haul or even just one run a week try taping over your watch like on an easy run run whoa yeah okay maybe i'm getting a little extreme whoa (laughs) although i did say so i've never run a marathon for fun and i'm going to do that in february and i did say i was going to tape over my watch we'll see if she does it we'll see we shall see (laughs) (laughs) that would definitely be letting something big go we'll see and again, you know, 
here's the thing. I'm just giving her shit about the fact that I'm not sure she will be able to let go. But even the idea that she's talking about it, that she's recognizing that that's something that could be beneficial to her is a part of the process of letting go and opening the door to saying, well, that might be potentially. And I'm not here to say that it's the best thing that she do to tape over her watch. It may be that she needs to know some things along the way there. But again, this is just one of those game changers that can really make some unexpected thing, one or two unexpected things may make a huge difference for you. And by being open to what you can let go of, you will, um, again, it's not all about adding. Sometimes it's about subtraction. And so consider what you could subtract to optimize your training and your racing. So the final topic we're going to hit today is my absolute favorite. I wish I could do a whole episode on this topic. I mean, you can. You kind of own the podcast. Yeah, I haven't yet. Maybe one day I will. But it is about trail running. Um, I believe one of the all three of the ones that came before this are perhaps more important than this because they all have such an immediate and and huge effect on your overall running, um, your sleep, your nutrition, and letting go. But this is a small thing that may look small but can make a huge difference. And truly, when I see people who get involved in trail running, who will utilize trail running as a part of their road running experience, it's a absolute and complete game changer. And let me tell you why it's a game changer. Number one, your easy days stay easy. You you are, especially those who are first-time trail runners, I guarantee you if your heart rate is high on a, on a, on a single-track trail, it's because you're freaked out, not because you're running too fast. And that is a good thing. Um, your active recovery, this, you immediately get out on a trail and all of a sudden... Your paces are slower. You're more likely to go by feel because your paces are slower and you don't want to see that, sen- that, that immediate data that you get on your Garmin about saying that you're running. I mean, I don't know how many times I w- have worn a Garmin. I don't wear it anymore, but I did for a while. And I would run on the trail and I was like, I can't look at this thing anymore because it's telling me I'm running nine minutes and 30 seconds per mile and it feels like I'm running six minutes and 30 seconds per mile. <laughs> maybe not, maybe more like 7.30 per mile. But... The point being is that I immediately had to shift over and people do have to shift over to just going by efforts. And what a great way to start doing things by effort and then maybe utilizing and saying, hey, I'm going to go out for an hour run on a trail and maybe you use your Garmin, maybe you don't. Maybe you just say that hour is worth nine minute mile pace or 10 minute mile pace. I'm going to call it six miles or you can use the old um, Wisconsin method of Badger miles where you just decide that Generally, you're out there for that amount of time, and so your usual number of minutes per mile is seven-minute-per-mile pace or eight-minute-per-mile pace, and if you're out there for 80 minutes, then it's 10 miles. It doesn't really matter, but the trail immediately takes those data point demo, those data point numbers, turns them on their head in such a way that you're required to reframe your running, at least when you're on a trail. And any process by which an athlete reframes their running to moving easier on their easy days is a huge benefit, an absolutely huge benefit. Yeah, I will say, so Steve and I go on a trail run every Monday. Well, he, he runs on the trail all the time, but I go every Monday and the way that we do it is we, he'll say, how long do you want to go? And I will say, um, I don't know, an hour to an hour and a half. Let's see how we feel. And he says, okay. 
<laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't help myself there. Anyway, we go out and we just determine while we're out there how long we want to be out. And every time without fail, I'm crunchy and sticky and like crickety old woman out can not really move too well. And then by the end of the run, I'm like a different person. I'm, I'm more fluid. I have some flow and rhythm and better mobility and my muscles aren't as sore, but we're also running. I mean, when I'm trail running, I'm running like 10 minute miles, 11 minute miles. And it is, it is absolutely necessary for my performance. I have found it is, it does wonders for blood flow and recovery Here's the probably, for those who are skeptical, here's perhaps the most physical benefit you get from running on a trail is that you are required to change your neuromuscular recruitment Mm. patterns. So you have to change where you put your foot down, where, how you push off the ground. So pushing off the ground is challenged and putting your foot back down on the ground is challenged. Because of that, you're going to run in a different mechanics and with a different rhythm than you do on the road. So why is that important? Because when you run on the road, the only variation you usually get is the pace that you're running. And for so many people, they do so many miles within a very limited range of minutes per mile that they're getting very little um, extra benefit. They're getting very little... variation in that neuromuscular recruitment. What does that mean? Yes, there's benefits to that in the sense that those those tendons, ligaments, and muscles are better, are more innervated, they get more oxygen, they, they, everything functions pretty well because of that, but they're overused. And I don't know how many times that people who have been significant shufflers or way over bouncy runners, whatever your predilection is, you get on a trail, you run on a trail for six months, eight months, 12 months, 18 months, and people's mechanics get so much better because they've now recruited new neuromuscular recruitment patterns. They're not putting this foot down on the ground in the same way, sometimes not even ever on a, tr- on a run. Depends on the level of, of, of technical, you know, how technical the trail is that you're running on, but we have to change the way we strike the ground and the way we the way we push off the ground and the way we land on the ground. And because of that, you're getting such a greater variation. Variation is the critical and crucial aspect of benefiting in from training. And trail running puts gives you variation in spades. It's also, most of these trails are not dead flat. So you're going up a little bit, down a little bit, changing um, your hill, changing your, not so you're not only changing the undulation of, the, the um, unevenness of terrain, you're changing the undulation of the actual track or course that you're on. And so your hips are firing differently. You're pushing off with your calf differently. Your hamstring is engaging differently. Your quadriceps are engaging differently. And you're creating a much more well-rounded, balanced running form because you're out there on the trails. And to me, that's, that is not the reason I run on trails, but it is certainly one of the biggest benefits that I've gotten from running on trails. And most people will tell you, and Kristen, this was the case for you when you first got started, you freaked out. Like it was, it was scary. You kept thinking, what will happen if I fall? What will happen? Well, I'm running too slow. What will happen if I fall? 
And yes, those are legitimate and reasonable concerns, and I hear you. I stand and witness your fear. But I'm telling you, for almost everybody, the benefits that you get from this activity are so great that any risk of an ankle turn or a trip that might have a bigger impact on your long-term running career will be made up for by being on a trail. In my opinion, now I know I might stand, you know, somebody trips and falls and, and breaks their collarbone and they'll have a different attitude about that. And I get that as a fear, but the more you run on the trail, the better you'll get. The better you get, the more you'll want to run on the trail, the more you want to run on a trail, the more miles you'll do, and the better runner you'll be in the long run for sure. Another benefit of this is a word that some people don't know is proprioception. You used it earlier in another context, but proprioception is just basically your body's ability to know what to do in the space around it when you're moving, okay? So it's utilizing your sense perceptions, and it's many different sense perceptions, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your skin, lots of different things are perceiving when you're on a trail, and you have to your proprioception increases exponentially by being on a trail. And therefore, once your proprioception gets better, most people's proprioception is so poor that that's why they're so freaked out when they get on a trail. But if they'll just get on a trail a little bit, and I would argue even if you did a two to three mile trail run um, once a week, within three months, you'll get so much better at doing trail running and your general proprioception will get so much better that you'll be able to extend those into 30 minutes and then into an hour and then into whatever distance that you want to because you just need to get that proprioceptive talent. You just have to train that, that sense perception to get better. And once you do, you'll be able to use it so much more. And it will actually have a lot of benefits for you on the road as well. A lot of times I'll see a roadrunner who just steps off a curb wrong and they'll get absolutely hurt. That never happened to a trail runner ever where they stepped off a curb wrong and they got injured because you're going to have be so much better with your proprioception and you're going to have neuromuscular recruitment patterns that are going to benefit greatly as well. So anyway, those are, the f those are some physiological reasons. Um, of course, my main reason for doing it is because I love to move through space, and I love to move through space in nature, and uh, it feeds my soul. It feeds, it makes me a better human being um, for so many reasons. It's also good for gut health. Just throwing that out there. Says the tree licker. Na well, the tree hugger. Just breathing in. Yes, ju but all, that too, if you want to lick a tree, that's good. That's good for gut health. However, just breathing in different um, different air from different environments, it it does wonders for your for gut health. So there's that. But also being in the woods is like being in church, being at church, but like mm. a really cool church where you get to run. Yeah, I mean, you get a deeper connection to place your place where you are, um, to nature itself in general. Um, you know, we're. Evolutionarily, we were running two million years ago when we were not running on paved roads in city, in the city. We were running on single track or, or, or animal trails, um, not just to run our food down, but also to move from one place to another. And so we have a deep, deep, deep in, built-in genetic predisposition to this activity 
in this form. And it's my argument that this makes you a significantly better runner because you're tapping into something that is primordial, something older than we, even older than homo sapiens, our, our pre-homo sapien ancestors were doing this activity. So it is a long, long lineage that was, that's been done. I can tell you I feel like a better human being because I'm on a trail. And that's not just the sunny disposition it gives me and the feeling of connectedness to nature, which are all wonderful and great attendant benefits. But the main benefit I feel like is that I'm connected to something that makes me truly, truly human. Um, and there's not a single sport that can make that argument. Not a single sport. It is, this is the original sport, and, um, and we did it for locomotion, and we did it for more than entertainment. And that's why it will always be my first love. So, yeah, trail run. That's a game changer. Do you have anything else you want to share about that? I don't. You got it. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. I did want to plug one thing. We have a, uh, we're starting a brand new base building program. It's a free program. It starts on um, February 3rd, which is a, which is a Monday. But it is an ongoing program. It'll be 12 episodes, free episodes that you can download at any time, give you a basic idea of how um, our, our online training program functions. It's a base building schedule that will help anybody who's at between, let's say, 20 and 25 miles to build their volume up in a safe and efficient and healthy way to get them in a position to they can be fit enough to train for any race distance from a 5K all the way to a marathon, um, 12 weeks long, Comes with a weekly podcast, um, uh, access to a private Facebook page, um, and you get to hear my sonorous and my sonorous voice every week on more topics than just uh, whatever running on purpose topic. Sign me about. up. <laughs> so anyway, if you're interested, you can find that at um, tellusrunning.com. The backslash is Basecamp. That's the name of the program, Basecamp. So if you're interested, um, just send me an email. And um, there's a link to it on that webpage and uh, get signed up for the program. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode, episode 14, and we'll talk to you next week.